We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 today, Acts chapter 15. Acts is in the New Testament. If you're new with us, we have Bibles in the back. It'll also be on the screen here, so you don't have to worry about going back there if you don't want to. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and we're in the 15th chapter there. Hey, I wrote this um, sermon before vacation. Have you ever had this experience at work? where you're working on something before vacation so you can get it done and enjoy your vacation and you come back to the thing you were working on after vacation and you're like, what was I thinking exactly with this? And I, I, I don't feel that way completely about this sermon, but what I wish is that this sermon was a Bible class and that you could ask questions and we could talk about it and engage and throw things up on the wall. But for the record, I'm not taking questions during the sermon. Uh, this morning, okay? But I wish we had a little more time because what I think, I actually think this is incredibly important, but it's a little challenging to understand, maybe. So I wish we had a little more time, and I hope you'll, you'll hang with me, though, as we explore this. Here's, here's how I want to set this up. There are different dimensions to your faith. There's your, your personal, private dimension to your faith. It's your time in prayer, uh, your time in and study of God's word. There's your devotional dimension to your faith, which is the worship, your, your singing, and that can also be connected to your prayer and study. There's the social dimension of your faith. So what, what, what does what I believe compel me to do for the world's sake? And then, and really importantly, there's the relational dimension to your faith. And there's not hard and fast lines between those. I, I think they all blur together. But there comes a moment when what I believe, what I'm convicted about, what I love, um, comes into contact with somebody else. And that raises questions for how I engage with that person around the things I believe to be most important or less important. I'm going to try to make sense of that with this passage. Come with me to Acts 15 today. The backstory on this is that a group of Jews come to Paul's home church in Antioch, his sponsoring congregation. Antioch is a really diverse church, so there's Jews there, but there's also Gentiles of all sorts in this church. And this group of Jews show up and they begin preaching this message in Paul's home church. You remember, Paul's the missionary to the Gentiles, so to, to the nations, all right? And people come up and they're preaching this, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, nothing gets Paul fired up like people saying this. If, if you wonder how Paul feels about this, read Galatians. Paul does not think they are right, okay? He does not think that you must be circumcised, which, for a little background, is a medical procedure that's connected to the Old Testament law. So Paul thinks that is not required anymore. So he goes to Jerusalem. He gets sent to Jerusalem, which is kind of the mothership for all these other churches all over the place. And they go to Jerusalem to kind of work this out. Are these guys right? Or is Paul right? And he shows up in Jerusalem and he hears more of the same. So this is 15 verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, what's happening here is another conflict over whether 
Gentiles, so those who are not Jews, can be part of the people of God now because of what Jesus Christ has done. I've preached about that a couple times because it comes up all throughout Acts. In fact, this took decades for the church to work out and to get okay with. That is all kinds of people coming in. It took them a while to get there. So we've already preached about that. That's not what I want to talk about today. Instead, I want to look at how, how these church leaders respond to this question and wonder if there is a principle there for us that will help us to engage with other people when we might disagree with them well. How do we do that? What guides us in that moment? Okay. So let's throw this language from the passage itself up on the screen. And this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with this same image at the end. There's, this is going to be kind of open-ended, like a Bible class. I'm going to invite you to go and study this more. But let's try this. Let's, let's throw this up on the screen. Unless you blank, you cannot be saved. This is the language from the text itself. All right, let's go a few verses forward. A Christian must blank. Or, in that same verse, a Christian is required to blank. So, my question would be, how would you fill in those blanks? All right? Here in this context, it's an issue of circumcision that's getting thrown in these blanks. Okay? We're, we're kind of past that now as being the issue that we're facing. That doesn't mean we don't think anything belongs to be in those blanks. But does everything belong in those blanks? Or just some things? Which is it? How would you fill in those blanks? See, this is where I would love for us to discuss, but for the record, don't raise your hand. Um, what would you put in those blanks right there? Here's what, here's what my guess would be. What you would put in those blanks probably depends on how old you are, right? It probably depends on uh, who your heroes were growing up, what the people you love most have taught you about what belongs in those blanks. It probably depends on that. Uh, it probably depends, if we're being honest, on how much time you spend on social media or watching the news. It probably, if we're being very honest, depends on what has happened to you in your life. Maybe some of your failures, some of your heartaches, sorrows, all those things tend to influence what we would put in those blanks. And again, I'm not saying nothing belongs in those blanks, but I'm wondering what does. Here's what I would guess. In this room, as you look at those, and we'll leave those up there on the screen for just another minute, as you look at that, there are some in here that are developing long lists that they would put in those blanks, and they are checking it twice. Okay. There are others in this room, and this particularly is probably a generational thing. There are others in this room who are looking at that language and are grossed out by it. You mean that's in the Bible? Gross. It's such a turnoff that there would be anything actually required or a must for Christians, that unless this, you cannot be saved, that just seems so uh, intolerant, doesn't it? So some are feeling that way this morning. 
So why is it important that we really think through what goes in those blanks as the body of Christ? Okay, for two reasons, and both of them have to deal with the relational dimension of what it means to be a Christian, how I interact with other people. The first is the public defense of Christianity in a world that is deeply suspicious and skeptical of it. To be able to defend what it means to be a Christian, we have to be able to define what it means to be a Christian. Does that make sense? And so we live in a time where a lot of people think things about what it means to be a Christian that aren't true. And there's a lot of cultural baggage that goes along with that. I was listening to a podcast recently, and the guy was talking about the dramatic increase in those who check uh, none on their religious affiliation on their, on their documents, public censuses and stuff like that. So the increase of those who have no faith, who either left faith or are opposed to faith altogether. And he said, one of the most significant events that has contributed to the dramatic increase in those leaving the faith or resisting the faith was September 11th. And he said, because it was the first and most dramatic time in the modern era in which we were, were reminded that deeply held religious convictions can harm people, can hurt people. And you tack onto that what's happened in so many arenas around morality in our modern world. And many have said that now those who are defending the faith, like you and I, are no longer trying to defend whether or not Christianity is true, but whether it is good for you versus harmful for you. And so to be able to defend that, you got to define what's the core, what's it most about, what's a must or what's required. And then the second reason it's really important to think through what's in those blanks is internal relationships. How do I stay united to the people of God with whom I might disagree on some things? What are the things worth dividing over? And what are the things that aren't worth dividing over? Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because Jesus said, the unity of the body of Christ will be the single most compelling message to the world that he is who he says he is. So it's a big deal. All right, well, let me give you a metaphor for how to think through what happens and what we see here in this passage. We're about to go back to the passage, but let me give you two metaphors and then it'll help you kind of frame what the leaders in the church do. Okay, have you ever heard the phrase, that's not a hill I'm gonna die on? Have you ever heard that before? How many of you have said that before? How many of you have said that to your spouse before? Anybody willing? No, no, all the hands went down. All the hands went down. Smart. You're like, Eric, that's not a hill I'm going to die on. Okay. What does that mean? That, well, that, that's a military metaphor. That's where that comes from. And the idea is uh, in combat, high ground is advantageous. You can see everybody come in. You're not going to get snuck up on from behind. So it benefits you to be on a high place. And so the question is, is this hill that we want to take worth dying on? Worth dying over? Let me give you a visual like this. So here's, here's some mountains. We did a little artwork this week. It took us a while. And um, you can see these mountains in profile here, and you can see there's various high points on this map, but they're not all equally tall. 
And they, all, they wouldn't all be equally advantageous or worth dying on. It's clear from looking at it that one of those mountains is taller than the others and would be much more beneficial, okay, or would be much more important to, to climb. And that idea is not foreign to Scripture. Uh, let me give you an example of this. As you're looking at this map here, keep that on the screen for just one more second. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul's trying to keep a church that believes some different things about what kind of food we should eat and not eat, what kind of holidays we should keep or not keep. And he says, hey, on that stuff, it, it is not worth fighting over. So he's saying, yeah, those are, those are summits worth thinking about, worth studying, worth being in conversation and dialogue with your brothers and sisters in Christ about, but that is not a hill worth dying on. That's what he's saying in Romans 14 and 15. We don't have to stress about that. Um, but if you come with me to 1 Corinthians, compare Romans 14 and 15 to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. Look what Paul says. For what I received from Jesus, I passed on to you as of first importance. What is it? What's of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised. Paul would say, that's a hill worth dying on. And for Paul, he did die on that hill. Literally, not just figuratively. This is worth um, engaging with somebody on. We're thinking about the rules of engagement, the relational dynamic to our faith. There are some things that are more important. And to gather each other together on those tallest peaks really matters. And sometimes we can let the lesser ones go. Let me give you another metaphor here, and then we're going to jump back into the text. Have you ever heard the word triage before? Okay, some people have talked about what I'm describing as, as theological triage, which sounds fancy, but triage takes place in an emergency room. And in an emergency room, uh, the doctor who's, who's trained in triage assesses everybody that comes in. And so let's say some guy comes in and he's got a skinned knee. He's bleeding from his knee. He, he's got a bruise on his knee. And he's got a badly broken arm and his heart is barely beating. Okay, the doctor doesn't say, well, the arm's not important and the knee's not important. What does he say? What's most important is we get his heart beating. Otherwise, the arm and knee do not matter at that point. Okay, so we've got to deal with what's of first importance first. And then, and only then, when we have common ground there, can we deal with what's maybe of less importance. So, come back with me to the passage, because that's exactly what Peter does here. And he frames... What is a critical moment in the life of the church? I mean, a huge moment for us. A moment that solidifies you and I being part of the Christian faith. The reason they navigate this well is that Peter draws them back from this lesser peak to the summit. And he says, this is the stuff that's of first importance and matters most. And on this, we are united with the Gentiles. And so they're okay. Look, look at this. After much discussion, this is verse 7. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know, some time ago, God made a choice 
So he's appealing to God's will. God made a choice. What was it? Among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe it. He's talking about the central importance of belief in the story of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Okay, God who knows the heart, the knowledge and power of God, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That would be the high point. So he's drawn them all these back, these people in relational disagreement over deeply held beliefs. He's drawing them back, and what's he drawing them to? The most important things. And so if we were going to just look at this passage, and I'm going to invite you to do more of this here at the end. So this isn't... um, uh, complete here, this list I'm going to give you. It's not complete. But if we were just going to look at this list and think about that fill in the blanks I gave you earlier, here's some of the things Peter's saying, these are hills worth dying on. Look at this. The gospel and belief. The importance of the story of Jesus Christ, the central importance of that, and believing it with all of your heart. He says, that's at the top. Okay, what else does he draw him to? God's will and his knowledge, working in all things in the world. Number three, he, does, he draws them to God's desire or God's love for all people. Remember this, John three sixteen. for God so what? Loved the world, everybody. He's drawn them back to that central thing. Uh, number four, God's gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what makes Christians different from all those other, others around us. We're filled with God the Spirit of God. He says that's centrally important. Or number five, Jesus saves us by his grace through faith. He draws them there. And then look at this. This is in the next few verses, verse 13. James spoke up. He said, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And the words of the prophet are in agreement with this as it's written, and then he goes on to describe. And so what we might do here, what you see there at the end, what's he appealing to? Scripture. He's saying Scripture backs up what he's saying so we can trust this. So if we were to go back to our list of five things we just threw up there, we could add a six to it, and that's the authority of God's word. And what Peter's saying is, and James and these other church leaders here, If we can draw together on these central truths, if we can climb these tallest mountains together, then we'll be equipped and prepared to work on the other stuff. And so first, when I'm relationally involved with somebody with whom I'm trying to share my faith, whether that's in the body of Christ or outside of it, I think the principle here is you start with the hills worth dying on. Those are of first importance. But we are often drawn to the lesser hills first, aren't we? Are we? Uh, recently, I was, I was on a trip somewhere and um, was confined with a person on this trip 
who had, uh, when we were about an hour away or hour into our trip, so well into the trip, well, um, but still distant from our final destination. So I was going to be with this guy for a while. It was at that point that he decided to share with me all of his political beliefs. Right? Okay. Have you ever had this experience before? Maybe you're flying on a plane with somebody or you're like trapped in a car on a long ride with somebody and they just start talking to you about all their conspiracy theories, you know, I'm talking about. And you're thinking to yourself, um, like I was, do I engage? Do I engage? Okay. Let's take this out of the political arena and and move it back into the, the arena of the spirit and of faith. Okay. You're having those experiences too when it comes to people you're interacting with in your workplace, in your schools, um, on social media. That's a dangerous place. Um, And within the body of Christ. That they bring up something and you're thinking to yourself, they are crazy. They're crazy. How in the world could they possibly believe that? right? Uh, my buddy, the other day, he's, I'm on this preacher text thread, a couple of my buddies, I've told you about this text thread before, and he texted us, uh, this was actually two or three days ago, he said, guys, I had an exterminator come to my house, and um, there's sometimes when you're a minister where um, you just kind of don't want people to know you're a minister, like when you're on an airplane would be an example, and um, the exterminator is like, what do you do for a living? And he says, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And then he begins to uh, have a long conversation with him. The exterminator begins to tell my preacher friend about how the end of the world is going to take place. And uh, it's a really long conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he says, the exterminator to my preacher friend, I want you to think about this. And if you want to study the Bible with me more about this, we can. You know, and um, my buddy he thought his exterminator was crazy, right? Um, and the question is, do I engage on that or not? Do I engage? Is it worth it? And I think the principle here that's taking place in Acts 15 is, is um, first, I'd make sure you have climbed the hills worth dying on together before those others. Are the others important? Absolutely. Um, are they worth studying and investigating with the people of Christ? Absolutely. Should we start with them? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Look at this. You, you may notice, this is verse 25, that what happens is that the leaders hear what these guys are saying, drawing them to these high points. And they talk about it and we read this. We all agreed. I mean, this is one of the greatest blessings of being part of the body of Christ is being a part of a group of people who are working together in the power of the Spirit to try to focus on what's most important. Right, that's it. We all agreed. And then in response, they send a letter to the Gentiles. And the letter to the Gentiles does not say, hey, Gentiles, nothing matters, you're all good. They actually send a letter that says, okay, this thing, circumcision, not important. But here are some things that are a must. So let's throw up that list with the blanks here. Here's what I want to challenge you with. I said this is more like a Bible class. I want to end with homework. Okay. How all good classes should end. I want to challenge you this week to go and spend time in God's Word, 
perhaps together with a few other believers here from church or in your life, and to think through how you would fill in those blanks and to think it through. Perhaps you do this and then you get together with somebody and y'all talk about it and you pray over it because there's two equal and opposite dangers here and both are so perilous for the body of Christ. One is to say that that list is infinite. There are so many things and what you have done then is create another Jewish law. And the other is to say that nothing is important that nothing goes in those blanks. And I know my generation, the generations below me are so tempted by that to say, you're all good. That is not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there are very important things that belong in those blanks. Over the next few weeks, we'll explore this more, but I wanna challenge you to think and pray about that this week. That's your homework. Let me pray over us this morning. God, thank you for letting us be among your people, thinking about how you draw us to what is of first importance. And that when our lives are anchored there, that so much else begins to make sense and fall into place. Would you continue to do that for us, God, by your grace, spirit, and power? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.